in preparation for our sermon text, which comes from Luke chapter 10. Will you turn first in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is that watershed in human history when our father, our first father, falls into sin. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. This is the word of God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We come now to Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit and illumine our minds, that these words we have read would not remain simply in our heads, but that they would lodge there and take root and bear fruit upward in our lives for the glory of the kingdom of God and the good of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This tidal wave of gospel preachers, 70 strong, who announced in every city and place the approach of God's king to Jerusalem. They return now to the king who first commissioned them to go. Mission accomplished. Along the way, they'd stayed where they were told to stay. They'd eaten whatever was set before them. And they'd become a blessing to those who hosted them. But more to the point, in the Lord's name they'd healed the sick. 
and delivered that royal message of verse 9. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And now they've returned. Exactly where, exactly when they returned, Luke doesn't think it important enough to tell us. What is important is that having gone forth, they now return to Jesus to give an account of themselves. As all preachers in every generation will, in fact, soon enough do. We don't receive our marching orders from the king only then to disappear into the woodwork, at least not forever. Whatever our station in life as witnesses for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that day hastens on when you and I will return to Jesus and give an account of ourselves. So these 70 returned and they reported. But what a report they give. What a report it is. With 27 years in the army now behind me, I'm reminded of the standard after-action review format we used to evaluate our own performance at the close of our tactical field exercises. What we do is typically stand or sit around in our little groups and someone would offer up his version of the mission we'd received and then people would give their three ups and three downs. That is, three things we did well and want to keep on doing the next time we do this, and three things we want to improve next time, because this time around they didn't go so well. But look at this particular after-action review of the 70. Seventy of them gathered together, gave their report to Jesus, and everything worked. This was our mission. This is how we went about doing it. And everything worked. We stayed on mission. We stayed on track. We stayed in our lane. And there's not a thing we'd do differently. In fact, it's even better than that. We went out with two main tasks to accomplish. First, in your name, Lord, we healed the sick. That's a pretty significant thing. We healed the sick. But secondly, and even more important, we deliver the message that God's kingdom is at hand. But preaching this very simple, straightforward message the Lord gave them, accomplishing the mission that they were given, all of them discovered something they never expected at all. And they express it to Him here. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Bearing the name of Jesus with you, bearing it upon you, bearing it within you, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Even the demons are subject to us, they said, because they're subject to you, the one we represent. This is pretty heady stuff, these unexpected new powers we have in your name over the demons. This is their first sip of champagne, and it's intoxicating. Their very first taste of the powers of the age to come. It's like falling in love for the very first time. Small wonder the jubilation 
they felt. The euphoria, the joy, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's amazing. But soldiers in pursuit of a fleeing army do well to bear in mind that we're soldiers. Success doesn't turn the disciplined soldiers of a disciplined unit in a disciplined army, doesn't turn us into a bunch of woohoo party boys. Mission success only shapes the future battlefield. That's what gospel success does. It's not the end of the story. It sets the conditions for the next phase of the operation. So whenever we succeed, there's no resting on our laurels. No kicking back. So Jesus rejoices with them here, it's true. But his response also gets their feet back on the ground. It refocuses their attention on the one thing most important. First of all, in his response to their joy, the Lord Jesus explains his broader command perspective on what they've just accomplished. His perspective, in fact, on what every faithful Christian witnesses accomplishes whenever and wherever the gospel of God's kingdom is preached. So he puts us in mind, first, of his superior perspective on the battle his superior perspective on it. Then secondly, he reminds us whence our success, even our gospel invincibility, springs. Bear in mind, friends, that 70 went out in his name and 70 returned. All of them. Every last one of them. In Jesus' name, they exercised power over the enemy and nothing they encountered along the way harmed them. Nothing took them out of the fight. But what he says to them here is even better than that. What he says is that nothing these gospel preachers encountered along the way in the last analysis ever could harm them. So in addition to his superior perspective, he puts us in mind of his sustaining power for the battle. His sustaining power for the battle. And then too, he sweeps away the natural fleeting euphoria of gospel success and gets their feet back on the ground by reminding them and reminding us, thirdly, of the solid lasting foundation for Christian joy. Because not every engagement with the enemy is going to feel like a victory, is it? Not every day is going to seem joyful. Remember that day John Mark up and left Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus? Not a good day. Remember the time not long afterward when for preaching the gospel in Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Not an especially good day either. In fact, a casual observer might easily describe the Apostle Paul's life as one very long string of bad days. To guard our joy from ever falling victim to outward circumstance, we do well to ground ourselves in the bedrock of God's standing purposes beyond the battle. His standing purposes beyond the battle.
But let's get back to the first point he made about his superior perspective on the spiritual battle being waged, which is the preaching of his kingdom. Even the demons were subject to you. Well, as you were out there preaching God's kingdom and demonstrating its presence in the healing of the sick, my heart went out with you as well. My eye was upon you. And what you saw up close and personal was amazing. Even the demons subject to you. Foot soldiers of hell who came out against you now suddenly throwing down their arms and giving it all up as a lost cause in the face of the glorious gospel of the kingdom. That's what you saw. Each one of the 70 of you. Now let me tell you what I saw. While you 70 were going before me preaching the kingdom of God. I was watching Satan fall. Like lightning from heaven. While you were out preaching the near approach of God's king and his kingdom... I was watching Satan's whole empire crumble. And not just gradually. Not just in some piecemeal, evolutionary, billions and billions of years kind of way. Because the gospel you preach, the gospel of the kingdom of God, suddenly removes the one linchpin that supports the whole superstructure of Satan's argument. It demonstrates to the world that his power, Satan's power, is illegitimate. It exposes him as a usurper. So while you were out preaching the gospel in my name, I was watching Satan fall. Like lightning from heaven. Suddenly. Unexpectedly. Publicly with an unmistakable crash, with a resounding boom. The gospel of the kingdom doesn't just annoy Satan, friends. It doesn't just annoy him. It doesn't just wear him down over time. Whether you're the preacher, or you're the faithful witness, have the privilege of seeing it or not, the presentation of God's kingdom and his one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, it absolutely discomforts him. He's undone by it. Because once you take away, by the gospel, the power of sin, the power of guilt, the power to accuse, once you take that all away by heaping every last particle of it upon the one God-appointed sinless substitute, this man now on his way to the cross... When you've done that, what's Satan got left to work with? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You saw vanquished demons subjecting themselves to you in my name, but as I viewed the battlefield, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Our Lord Jesus Christ has this superior view, this superior perspective on the battlefield. He also provides the heralds of his kingdom the sustaining power to overcome in the fight. Verse 19. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Brothers, let these words of Jesus sink in. Let them sink in. We mustn't ever try to add our own qualifications and limitations to the unqualified, unconditional promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. We mustn't, under our breath, say that little tagline you hear at the end of so many radio ads. You know the one I mean, the one the announcer speed reads in the final half second of the ad. I can't even say it that fast, but the words are these, essentially. Sometimes they say more, but they always include this, terms and conditions apply. No, we need to resist limiting by personal doubt the clear, unqualified promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we need to do our best to interpret them properly. We need to understand his meaning, but not to add our own little twist, not to add our own little caveats to make these wonderful promises of no effect, which is what I'm afraid many people are inclined to do. So how should we understand this wonderful sustaining power he promises to those who represent and speak for him? This sustaining power over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Power so remarkable that nothing will injure you. As we begin to understand the awesome power of the gospel that's entrusted to us, we come to realize that the power and penalty of my death for my sin is already behind me. The wrath of Almighty God against sinners, His wrath against me, in Christ it's a settled matter. Settled 20 centuries ago. So fear of it, anxiety over it, Fretting over the brevity of life and what lies beyond it, these things have no rightful place in my heart or my thinking. Oh, there was certainly a time they did. Apart from faith in Christ, they did. And the sinner today, trusting his own merit or his own willful ignorance of the gospel to gain him an easy death, he's got very good reason to fear. Very good, very well-founded reason. Because his death isn't behind him. His death is still ahead of him. And it's not far off. And it's not going to be easy. But it's not so for the Christian. My death has already taken place. My penalty is paid. Jesus paid it. So how can it injure me? How can anything, in the last analysis, how can anything injure me? Paul says we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because at the cross, Christ, my sinless substitute, bore in his body and soul all my sin. 
took my injury, died my death. So it has no more power over me or over you if he died for you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a pretty absolute promise, isn't it? In the proclamation of the gospel, Christ gives his beloved everything we need to keep on preaching, to keep on demonstrating the power and glory of his kingdom for as long as he gives us breath to breathe. And then when that runs out, when we've breathed our last with the good news of his kingdom on our lips, it might even then be said over the vacant tabernacle of our body, in Christ's name, this man, this preacher, this faithful witness, in Christ's name, he trod all over that serpent of old, didn't he? Trampled him underfoot. In Christ's name, he overcame all the power of the enemy. In Christ's name, death itself couldn't hurt him. It only became the vehicle to transport him into glory. So Christ enjoys a superior perspective on the battle, and he sustains us in the battle by the power of the gospel both of which are pretty remarkable things, joyous things for these 70 or these half dozen gathered here today to contemplate. In the announcement of his kingdom, he goes forth conquering and to conquer. He's made us more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even the demons quake at the work he's promised to do and is doing in the life and character of those for whom he died. But there's more. The fall of Satan, the crumbling of his empire, the wondrous success Christ grants those who tread underfoot the serpent of old, all of them wonderful things. But there's more. Undergirding them all is a joy even deeper, a joy even more lasting than these because it's more personal. It's a joy in his eternal standing purposes beyond the battle. The healing and preaching ministry of these 70 lasted a very short while. My pastoral ministry here on earth is going to last a very short while. Moses in the 90th Psalm contemplates the brevity of our mortal lives in these words of verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it's gone and we fly away. So rejoice not in your Christian ministry. Rejoice not even in the victories granted over the power of the enemy. These things will pass. Rejoice rather that your names are recorded in heaven. Your eternal election by the sovereign good pleasure of God the Father 
to be given to the Son, to be powerfully kept and taught and made useful by the Holy Spirit. In this rejoice. Your eternal election is the first principle of Christian life and ministry. From this secret inexhaustible fountain that your name is recorded in heaven, from it flows every encouragement of Christian living every day, under every conceivable circumstance. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven because your election experiences no bad days. Your election experiences no disappointments, no betrayals, no abandonment, no loss, ever. Ever. If your name is recorded in heaven, then nothing on earth can ever possibly erase it. Which is a pretty substantial thing, isn't it? But the Lord's promise to those who overwhelmingly conquered in His name is even greater than that. There is much of the sum total of reality that lies beyond the horizons of this earth. Speaking on Christ's behalf, speaking as His faithful apostle, Paul gives us something to rejoice over when he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, the spiritual battle now engaging all the church's attention will very soon be over. It will be done. Our safety lies in the eternal purpose of God to save His elect, who with God Most High find shelter in the Almighty's shadow heights. Amen.